You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello and welcome to The Investor Way with myself, John McEwen, and my co-host, Sam Ball. This week on The Investor Way, we have Shell, GlaxoSmithKline, Sainsbury's, Rolls-Royce, British Telecom, and our US company of the week is PayPal. Sam, shall I kick us off with Shell? Absolutely. So Shell, Europe's largest oil and gas company, had their Q3 results out last week with third quarter underlying cash profits falling 7% to $21.5 billion compared with the previous quarter as a result of a 17% decline in the integrated gas division as supply constraints and operational issues offset higher prices. Reduced margins in chemicals and refining alongside a 7% increase in operating expenses also contributed to the decline. In upstream, however, underlying cash profits rose 12% with an increasing proportion of higher value deep water barrels selling. Meanwhile, the retail network saw a 4% rise in underlying cash profits with increased usage of the group's EV charging stations. The renewables and energy solution business performed poorly, and even excluding these, cash profits fell by $530 million, down 48% on the previous quarter due to price volatility and rising operational expenses. Free cash flow fell to $7.5 billion from $12.4 billion in the second quarter, with Shell increasing its holding of European gas inventories. Net debt rose on a quarterly basis with the reduced cash flow and the debt taking on spring energy, but it's still down from $57.5 billion a year ago to $48.3 billion. Alongside these results, the group announced a $4 billion buyback and a 15% increase in the fourth quarter dividend. In terms of valuation, Shell has a market cap of £173 billion and trades at just five times forward earnings compared with a 10-year average of 11, and it yields 4%. I thought these results were very good, albeit with the oil price slipping from the highs we saw earlier in the year. I think it's certainly not expensive at the moment, reflecting probably two things. The uncertainty with what will happen with the oil price in the sense that we're possibly or unlikely at the top of a cycle. And also given the regulation that we have in the UK and that we've got a windfall tax in place at the moment, but it's rumoured to be extended and expanded. That's for at least the next two years of the current government. And if there was any change in government, it might be even harsher, or certainly that's what the opposition's opposition parties are saying so i think that for me it makes me quite uncomfortable holding shell and i actually after holding for about six years sold it last week on the back of these results but also with that sort of government intervention on my mind the other concern i'd have is the the way that shell and i suppose bp for that matter are going about the transition to green energy how profitable or as we're seeing not that is going to be for them and that it's perhaps not a pure play oil and gas company as it was maybe five years ago that that or 
a combination of those things were a concern to me. So I sold out and for me and in my sort of investing style, I'll probably just reinvest it into the into the world index. Sam, what are your thoughts on these Q3 numbers and Shell as a company? I thought the results were actually surprisingly not that great because anything you see covering it, it's very, very politically charged. So you assume they're not, they're doing a lot better than they're doing. People tend to focus on the profits and how they are compared to pre pandemic levels. And actually, I don't think it's a great quarter. I don't really like the $4 billion buyback. I don't like it firstly, because I think, again, it's just drawing more political attention, which I think it's best off not doing. Same with the increase in the dividend. And I think with interest rates going up, I know the net debt's like, it's not at an unmanageable level, but I just think why not use the 4 billion to pay off some of the debt? Because it's less politically charged. And with rising interest rates, it could be quite a smart move anyway. So I think because of how politically charged the industry is right now, it would just make it uninvestable for me. And I wasn't that keen on it before. (laughs) What would you think about some of the US peers in the sense that there's potentially less intervention in that market? Is it would they still be a turn off for you? I don't massively like the industry anyway. And with the US peers, although they are getting less political intervention, it's reflected in the valuation. Yeah. So, you know, would would I think would I pay five times earnings for Shell if there wasn't the current political environment and the the windfall tax and every single person blaming them for all the problems of the world. I don't know if I, if I would, but I'd be much more likely to buy it at five times earnings than at like 16, 17 for Exxon. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess if it was like priced more like a tobacco company, it was just going to be left alone. I appreciate tobacco is hardly free of intervention as well because it's just going to be left alone it'd be much more attractive but for me it it would just be uninvestable because of the state intervention yeah and you can't you can't measure it so you're looking at these earnings and what you think you're going to get as a shareholder and actually you don't know because you get a government that comes in and has this massive hole in the finances it needs to block and it's like well politically it's very easy if they take a few more billion off like shell and bp no one's going to criticize them yeah. yeah. So it's just it's... You, you can't you can't reliably estimate what those future cash flows are. And when it is a business that's probably in long term decline, those future cash flows are very, very important. Absolutely. And it, I, and I think that's the big thing. It's if you've got a cyclical company, it's cyclical. And if at the top of the cycle, you're being bashed back down, that's you've got that uncertainty. And, and we saw it's... it when we when we covered yeah. it, when we covered it at the bottom. Yeah. The results were rubbish. Yeah, no they, they one, are, yeah, no one was chipping in. There were no GoFundMe's <laughs> or anything. No, that's I, right. I think... They were losing billion of billions of dollars. The, for Brent crude, it went below twenty dollars a barrel. They were pumping it at a loss. Now it's at ninety, but they're being bashed. And if it goes back down to twenty, no one's going to say, "Well, maybe we should give them some special tax breaks." <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, yeah, I, I just right. think that to me, the, the windfall tax seems very, very unfair. Unless it's going to be offset when the oil price is low by something that's much more beneficial than what other companies get. Because if you're going to single them out, I think you need to do it both ways. But obviously, that's not going to happen. 
It just, it's, just highlights why it's uninvestable yeah. for me. And it's, it's a company that does require a lot of capital expenditure. Yeah. And it's, what you're seeing is because you're just taxing it. We're not getting that capital expenditure. Yeah. it's. I think it's very problematic as a principle. And yeah, Shell... Supposed to, to the tobaccos, it feels like the tobaccos have been left relatively um, well alone for some time. I suppose the last big intervention we had was um, plain packaging, and that was what, 2013, 2014. And probably beneficial. Um, well, <laughs> it certainly reduced the marketing spend. But anyway, yeah. Um, I just, something else I was going to say about these as well. What was it? The green side of the business? No, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> oh, that was it. With like the windfall tax. I don't know why, like, they should be like massively incentivizing them to invest to mm. the point where, like, if they invest like basically all the profits, they just rather than it being capitalized or whatever, they just completely, if they invest the profits within like 12, 18 months or something, it just wipes away that windfall tax. That's what they should have yeah. done. Yeah. So and, that although they don't collect the money, you are getting the investment to hopefully bring down the oil price. That's I would have had less yeah. of an issue with that because you're almost all you're doing then is incentivizing them to invest yeah. rather than just penalizing them for success, which is a principle I just don't really like. Yeah. And you can see what they're choosing to do. They're increasing yeah. the dividend and just leaving the oil shares. in the ground. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, no, it's um I'm Glad I sold, I think, but I've taken off the, the tickets. I don't want to. I'm anchored at certain <laughs> prices with Shell after holding it for a while. Okay, on to a company that's probably less politically charged, Glaxo. Yes, so GlaxoSmithKline, the pharmaceutical company, have come out with their Q3 results. And third quarter revenue was up 9%, ignoring the effective exchange rate movements to $7.8 billion. Specialty medicines saw the greatest uplift at 24%, with vaccines and general medicines up 5% and 1% respectively. GSK recognised a total profit of $9.6 billion, relating to the demerger of the consumer healthcare division, Halion. Underlying operating profit for the remaining business up 4% to $2.6 billion, a 1.6% fall in margin to 33.3%. This reflected lower margins of COVID-19 solutions and launch costs for new medicines. GSK generated free cash flow of 712 million net debt was down to 18.4 billion from 22.1 billion benefiting from a 7.1 billion payout from the demerger which was partly partly offset by acquisition activity 2022 sales guidance has been raised with growth expected to be between 8 and 10% underlying operating profit growth is now expected to sit in the 15 to 17% range separately GSK announced that the US Food and Drug Administration has accepted its filing for the approval of the respiratory virus, older adult vaccine, with a final decision now expected by 2nd of May 2023. And in the results, if we go in, they did have um, quite a bit to say on the Halion demerger. I know we've already covered it and we've also looked at Halion's results separately, but I do think it's quite important. So I'll just read that out. On 18 July, GSK separated its consumer healthcare business from the GSK group to form Halion, an independent listed company. The separation was affected by a wave of demerger of 80.1% of GSK's 68% holding to GSK shareholders. The aggregate ownership by GSK after the demerger of 13.5% is measured at fair value with changes through profit and loss. 
The gain on the demerger for the distributed state was 7.2 billion, which was recognized in Q3 2022. The asset distributed was a 54.5% ownership of the consumer healthcare business. The net assets de-recognized reflected consumer healthcare transactions up to 18 July 2022, which included pre-separation dividends declared and settled before 18 July. These dividends included 10.4 billion of dividends funded by consumer healthcare debt that was partially on lent during Q1 2022, and dividends of 0.6 billion from available cash balances. GSK's share of the pre-separation dividends funded by debt resulted in a reduction in net debt for GSK on demerger. The gain on the demerger arising from remeasurement of the retained state was 2.4 billion, which was recognised in Q3 2022. The total gain on the demerger of the consumer healthcare business in Q3 was 9.6 billion. In addition, the profit after tax from the discontinued operations was 0.6 billion, which increased total profit after tax to 10.2 billion. In terms of the valuation, the business trades at a forward PE ratio of 10.4, and that compares to a 10-year average of 11.3. Although I would say it's now quite a different business to what it previously was, and the prospective dividend yield is 3.9%. My view is that, as every time, it's just too difficult to analyse. I mean, like in the results at the back, they talk about the um, the pipeline and how each of the things are going for each of the trials and stuff. And I, I just really struggle to analyse that because I just think I've just got to completely take them at what they say at face value. I can't really, I don't really have the ability to question it or be objective because I just don't know enough. So for me, for me it just, I, I don't have the understanding to invest in this. I don't know if this is a better business with or without Halion. I think the secure, like the, the that reliable revenue is probably quite complementary to the existing business model where it sort of, it's it's fortunes will rise and fall with certain drugs. So I think it was probably better with it in there. And as we've discussed before, I think if they were to have gotten rid of it, I think they should have gotten rid of it when Unilever offered them double the amount they actually spun <laughs> it out for. So mm. these results are fine. In fact, I'd actually say these results are pretty good. I, th- I just think it's overshadowed by the Halion spinoff. But yeah, too hard pile as usual. What are your thoughts on these results, John? Yeah, I mean, on the surface, as you say, they seem very good. I think it's difficult because the valuation is, well, a large part of it is down to the pipeline. And if you don't understand or have the specialist knowledge to understand the pipeline, then it's very difficult to value. I suppose with any pharmaceutical company, you've got huge R&D costs. And then if you get a patent on a blockbuster, then it's sort of a license to print money. But... Yeah, like you say, the, the analysis to get there is tough and you probably need a very specialist background to be able to to get there. I suppose in principle as well, as you say, it's now a pure play um, pharma company rather than the a pharma company with the consumer health, which gives you that sort of, I suppose it's almost like a bond proxy that, um, having or when they had Halion as part of it. It's a bit more like AstraZeneca, and historically, or certainly in the last 10 years, AstraZeneca has had has done a lot better. So I suppose Glaxo really the aim would be to catch up with the competitor and they're a fair bit smaller. They've been dwarfed by AstraZeneca in recent years. I would agree with you. It's going into the, the too hard pile. 
Should we move on to a business that is quite a bit simpler to understand then? Yes, um, we we do like our supermarkets and it's the UK's second largest supermarket, Sainsbury's, with a nearly 15% market share. They had their half year results out last week with first half group revenue up 4.4% at £16.4 billion. Excluding fuel, underlying retail sales fell 0.8% on a like-for-like basis to £14.7 billion. Sales improved over the half, with the first quarter facing tough comparators with the lockdown boost. Grocery sales were up 0.2%, whilst both general merchandise and clothing fell 6.1% and 6% respectively. Underlying operating profit came in at £496 million, down 8% with the group investing in keeping prices as low as possible with considerably higher than expected cost inflation. The group have delivered £730 million of their ongoing £1.3 billion cost-saving programme. Retail cash flow rose 37% to £759 million with more normalised cash flow patterns compared with the pandemic disruption last year. Net debt, including lease liabilities, fell £180 million to £6.2 billion. The group continues to expect underlying profit before tax of between £630 and £690 million, with free cash flow of at least £500 million. An interim dividend of 3.9 pence per share was announced, which represents a 22% increase. In terms of valuation, Sainsbury's has a market cap of £5 billion and trades at just under 10 times forward earnings, yielding 6%. I thought these results were reasonable, but they're certainly not as good as Tesco's, which we covered back in October, who managed to grow half-year sales by 3.5%. I do think the group is following the right strategy, though, and they're investing in keeping costs low, or keeping prices low to avoid those well, to avoid losing customers as they did when the big four hiked prices and then lost out to the discounters after 2008. But obviously, this is an expensive strategy. I think it's reflected in the share price at under 10 times forward earnings, below the 10-year average of about 12 times forward earnings. They are paying a healthy dividend, but as always, you don't know how long that will continue for. It's also worth mentioning that I think we would both agree on the show that Tesco's is the best UK supermarket and the best run. It's got 27% market share, and that's also trading at about 10 times earnings, possibly uh, closer to 11. But it's not a significant premium for I think is a better business. So I certainly wouldn't consider Sainsbury's uninvestable, but I think if you were looking for a retailer or a supermarket in particular, Tesco's would be a better option. Sam, what are your thoughts on these numbers from Sainsbury's? I think they're poor. I agree with you. I I think the strategy is the right one, but I think the execution could be better. I agree Tesco's a better business, but when Tesco's up 3.5%, excluding fuel, and they're down 0.8%, I think they're doing something wrong. I don't know what. <laughs> I think it's a very difficult problem, I, especially given that the strategy is the right one. But there's, I just think if if Tesco are able to increase revenue whilst pretty much holding prices, I don't see why Sainsbury's shouldn't be able to do it as well. 
I just think as well, Tesco is just a much better business. I don't like Argos. I don't feel like the Argos acquisition has ever really worked for Sainsbury's. Yeah, I, if I wanted exposure to the industry, I'd, I'd just pay up for Tesco. I wouldn't feel comfortable holding Sainsbury. I just think Tesco is just a much better business. Okay, so not one for the watch list then. No, I, Morrison's would have been before okay. it got taken over by PE, but the only one I'd consider is Tesco now. Yeah, well, you you can't buy Asda and you can't buy no. Morrison, so <laughs> it's if you're looking for a supermarket, it's one of those two on the footsie. Okay, uh, what about Rolls Royce then? Rolls Royce, yeah, it, it's not it's not great. You sort of know where <laughs> this is going already, so. Rolls-Royce have come out with a trading statement. So it's a trading update to 31 October 2022, and they've highlighted continued recovery with record order intake in power systems, large engine flying hours at 65% at 2019 levels in the four months to the end of October, and up 36% year-to-date. They have two five-year contract renewals and defense, securing $1.8 billion of continued aftermarket services. And the guidance is unchanged. So if we break it a bit down, they said in September, we completed our 2 billion program of disposals with the sale of ITP Aero for 1.6 billion euros and immediately repaid our 2 billion UK export finance backed loan during 2025. We subsequently have approximately 4 billion of drawn debt outstanding, of which about half a billion matures in 2024, 0.7 in 2025 and 2.8 billion from 26 to 28 we have 2 billion of cash and 5.5 billion in undrawn committed facilities including a 1 billion five-year sustainability linked loan that's odd that to link a loan to sustainability it's not a criticism Mm -hmm. of uh, rolls royce i just think if you're a bank just stay in your lane but anyway (laughs) uh, supported by an 80 percent guarantee from uk export finance entered into in september we aim to return to an investment grade credit profile in the medium term supported by free cash flow generation maintaining strong liquidity remains important to us The recent volatility in interest rates and foreign exchange have not had a material impact on our underlying cash flows or 2022 guidance, which is unchanged. All drawn debt is on fixed interest rate terms and hedged into GBP executed in 2019 and 2020 during the low interest rate environment. We do not anticipate raising drawn debt for near-term loan financing. Our transactional Forex exposure is fully covered by our hedge book in the medium term and our UK defined benefit pension scheme is well funded, hedged and collateralised and we do not anticipate making any cash contributions to the scheme in the foreseeable future. Many of our long-term contracts contain inflation-linked pricing clauses based on standard indices for energy, materials and wages that help us mitigate cost increases. We continue to manage the current energy and raw material inflation risk through supplier agreements and hedging policies. In October, we agreed a 6.5% wage increase and an additional £1,500 payment with UK-represented staff, reflecting the substantial cost of living increases our people are experiencing. We aim to recover cost inflation through operational efficiencies as well as increased pricing. Supply chain pressures have led to higher levels of inventory, but we do not expect this to affect our ability to meet guidance and remain focused on delivering good cash conversion. And in the business performance summary, they've said in civil aerospace, large engine flying hours continue to recover and were 65% of 2019 levels in the four months to the end of October and 62% year to date. 
The 36% growth year to date compared to the prior year reflects uneven recovery around the world, with stronger recovery in the US and Europe, but lower travel in China and Asia due to ongoing COVID measures. Engine flying hours in business aviation remain strong and above the 2019 level year to date. In defence, we continue to see robust demand from our customers with $1.8 billion in contract renewals and repricing relating to the next five years to support engines in service, including those with the US Department of Defence powering the C-130J. As indicated, at our half-year results, we expect a low double-digit percentage operating margin in defence in 2022 and into the medium term, reflecting the planned increased investments in new defence programmes. Revenue growth in 2022 is expected to be modest due to the non-repeat of legacy spare part sales that took part in 2021, with no material benefit from the increase in government defence budgets in the near term to our long product cycle. In power systems, a continued high levels of demand in many of our end markets is driving an exceptionally strong order book with a record order intake to date in 2022 and good revenue cover for 23 and beyond. In new markets, we continue to invest in technology to deliver to, on our transition to net zero. In our electrical business, we welcome the decision by the European Union's Clean Aviation Programme to proceed with over 700 million of funding for 20 aviation research and innovation programmes from across the industry. In terms of the valuation, the PE is useless because the profits have been decimated. So the PE is actually in the hundreds, and this is not a growth company. So mm. it trades at a forward price to sales ratio of 0.6, and that compares to a 10 year average of one, and it has a prospective yield of 0.4%. I thought there was quite a lot of this that was fairly encouraging, in that I think they've Management have probably been as smart as they can be with the debt. They, you know, they've sold parts of the business to pay it off, and then they've also got it all on fixed term rates. But it doesn't change the fact that I don't think it's a great business. And if you look at the figures for the last five years, revenues nowhere near where it was pre-COVID. It's going to be linked to stuff like the airline industry. Who knows how long that will take, but to get back to one hundred percent. And if you look at the last five years, the interest expense has been huge. And even in the years where it's had operating profit, most years' interest expense would swallow it. I I, I think that they've probably got some breathing space at the very least. I think they've handled the situation as well as they can. But it's not a business I'd really consider investable. Maybe there's some value there, but it's it's difficult to judge. It's not something where like, I'd look at it and think, well, in two or three years, I can see it being back to where it is. It's going to have no problem paying me. I, th- I think this it's going to be a struggle to survive. I wouldn't look at it and say it's going bust, but I just I think as an investment, you can just do so much better that I don't know why you would want to consider a business like this. John, what are your thoughts on the statement and the valuation? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you, like you say, you can't really read too much into the uh, price-to-earnings ratio with Rolls-Royce. I don't think it's investable at the moment. And I'd also worry about if the macro situation is changing globally, the impact that that's going to have on the aviation industry. And I appreciate we've got some numbers going forward, but that that could certainly change. And it's in quite a precarious position already, so I, I wouldn't be going near it. Right, shall we move on to another business you might not be going there? Oh, we have covered this one a few times. It's BT Group, the telecoms company. 
They had their half-year results out last week with half-year revenue rising 1%, 10.4 billion pounds, reflecting growth in the consumer and open reach divisions, which was partially offset by declines in corporate clients, reduced equipment sales and the disposal of BT Sports. Higher energy and inflation costs impacted on the group's cost savings target, which has been increased by £500 million to £3 billion by the end of 2025 to help the group maintain cash flow. Underlying cash profits EBITDA grew 3% to £3.9 billion as a result of cost cutting. Normalised free cash flow fell by £300 million to £100 million with increased capital expenditure. Net debt came in at £19 billion, which is up from £18.2 billion last year. And alongside the results, an interim dividend of 2.31 pence per share was announced in line with last year. The shares were down over 8% on the news. In terms of valuation, BT has a market cap of £11.6 billion and trades at six and a half times forward earnings compared with a 10-year average of 10 and it has a prospective dividend yield of 6%. thought these results were disappointing, but and probably, as we saw with the share price, behind what the market was expecting, especially the net debt rising by nearly £800 million, so now it's got debt of £19 billion. It's got a huge pension deficit, and it's in an, an environment where interest rates are rapidly rising. And I think... The more attractive part of the business in the form of the higher margin open reach, which has an effective monopoly on the telephone and fibre network, that still isn't enough to make me look twice at BT, despite it appearing cheap on paper. I think it's a rubbish business and, again, another one that's uninvestable. Sam, do you see any value in BT? Uh, No, I think it's rubbish. Half year revenue rise 1%. It's not fantastic. Online profits growing up 3%. Again, not fantastic. For me, the real, I mean, those aren't terrible figures. They're not the worst figures we've seen this week. It's the debt for me. It's just really not good. 19 billion of net debt. Quite focused on the underlying cash profits EBITDA, which they're saying are 3.9 billion. I think the underlying cash profits are pretty irrelevant, really, if it's not flowing through at some point into operating profit, because it's just a made up number year after year. When you just say, well, look at this, if we adjust for this and that, and it's every year there's something. If you look at the last past five years, they've not hit that underlying cash profits in a single one. So I think the operating profit is probably the most appropriate figure to use. An operating profit. At the minute, it's two point, or in the last set, in the year to 31 March to 22, it's 2.9 billion. Compared to debt of 19 million, that is very uncomfortably high. It's well above the range at which I'd consider it to be okay. And that's with 19 billion. I'd say if this, if this had debt of about 12 billion, I'd be looking at that and saying, well, I'm a bit uncomfortable with that. At 19, it's just, it's just too much. And then you've got the pension as well. And it's just not, it's not just not a very well, I don't think it's a great business anyway. I don't know why they're paying a 6% dividend when they've got all that debt. They should cut it to zero, but well, the management <laughs> won't last long if they do that. But if mm. it, I think they should cut the, cut the dividend to zero and focus on paying off the debt. I really do. Especially, I mean, to, in this environment, to increase debt 800 million, that's probably just flowed straight into dividends. 
They probably mm. wouldn't have had to increase the debt if they hadn't been paying a dividend. I think it's just, it's bad management. It's a bad business. We've not looked at, I don't think for me, we've looked at some great businesses today, but this is comfortably <laughs> the worst, actually. The worst. Okay. Fine. Okay. Can the American Company of the Week save us? It'll have to. <laughs> Fortunately, it is a good business. So we've got PayPal. Yeah, um, and I, I, would, I mean, I would go back and I don't think, our, I think our first two and even first three weren't, aren't in that category, but the, the last couple. So. Yeah, I'd agree with that. They're all decent businesses. Shell is uninvestable, but that's for that's not really Shell's fault. That's political. Uh, GSK for me is uninvestable. That's because of my own lack of understanding. It could be a good business. Um, and those results were pretty decent. Sainsbury's is just not as good as Tesco. That's its worst crime. So yeah, I think lumping them in with Rolls-Royce and BT is maybe a bit unfair. So I do apologise yeah, yeah, for any... Yeah any management of those companies listening to the podcast. So onto our US company of the week, PayPal. They have come out with their Q3 results and net revenue climbed 12%, excluding exchange rate movements to $6.85 billion. And these figures are all in dollars. This was slightly better than the $6.82 billion expected. And underlying earnings per share was $1.08, which was 12.5% better than forecast. Revenue growth was driven by a 14% increase in total payment volumes to $337 billion. Underlying operating income saw a return to growth up 4% to $1.5 billion. That's a margin of 22.4%, up from 19.4% in the last, 19.1% in the last quarter. However, margins are still 5.3% lower than a year ago, with reductions in each of the five previous quarters. Underlying operating costs were up 12.8% to $5.3 which is a decrease in the rate of cost growth over recent quarters, which has largely been driven by slower growth in non-transactional expenses, such as sales, marketing, and operations. Pre-cash flows up 37% to $1.8 helped by higher cash profit as well as improved cash conversion. PayPal bought back $939 of its own shares in the quarter, and that's $3.2 so far this year. Uh, I will just go off on a tangent to say I'd, I'd actually really like to see that. So this is a stock that has been absolutely hammered. So it's 52 weeks high, $230, 52-week low, 67 and it's currently trading at 81 So I think for management to be consistently buying stock back as the stock is dropping, it's the opposite of what you normally see. And I think, to me, that is a signal of, at the very least, good capital allocation. Net cash totaled $200 million, which was down from $4.4 billion this time last year. The fourth quarter, PayPal expects net revenue of about $7.4 billion, which is a 9% growth rate. PayPal is expecting underlying operating profit margin to be about 22.5% in the final quarter, and shares were down 9.7% after the results came out. So total payment volume for the full year is expected to grow 8.5% on a spot basis and 12.5% on an FX neutral basis, and approximately 8 to $10 million net new active accounts are expected to be added in 2022 financial year and in the quarter 2.9 million were added which brings the total number of active accounts up 4% to 432 million the 5.6 billion of payment transactions was up 15% and they had 50.1 payment transactions per active account on a trailing 12 month basis which is up 13% so that means the average active account used PayPal once a week. I think these are actually pretty decent results. I think 12% is 
revenue grows pretty decent, especially given what's going on in the wider economy. If we go to the valuation, it's trading at a forward PE of 16 and a half, and that compares to a 10-year average of 32. And it's not currently paying a dividend, but it is buying back the shares. So I'm surprised how cheap this is. I think it's a fantastic business. And I, th- I think it's actually, I think we covered Visa recently, and it's trading at quite a discount to that. I wouldn't say it's that much lower quality of a business than Visa or MasterCard, actually. I think I, I rate it really, really highly. I think it's a fantastic business. And I think because those shares have dropped about 70% in the last 12 months, I think at a forward PE of 16, I think it's actually quite attractive. I really like it. John, what are your thoughts on the results and the valuation? Yeah, I mean, I think they're good results. And the valuation seems very cheap considering the type of business business that it is. I do, I've always liked Visa and MasterCard as companies. And I guess I've, probably be putting paypal in that category is it from your sort of well slightly more in-depth look at paypal could is there any reason that you could see for the discount compared with i appreciate they're not the same business but those two peers i think it's the growth i think growth drops quite a lot i'll just have a look just one sec i'll just get up the last four years because it was growing very rapidly and again it's another one where I, i think compared to Visa and MasterCard, it will have got much more of a boost from COVID. Yeah, so 2018, revenue was 15.4 billion, then up to 17.7. Then in the COVID year, jumps up to 21, then 25. And trailing 12 months, it's only 26. So I I think it's the slowing growth rate. I'm not sure what else it could be. I don't know if... the The margins have started coming down. Um, although they have now started going back up. But margin, and again, that's partly COVID though, because there's probably this massive explosion of online shopping, which they'll have benefited from. Whereas I think with Visa and MasterCard, I'm just sort of thinking out loud, but although a lot of shopping moved online, a lot of the shopping that moved was being done with Visa and MasterCard anyway. Whereas how many people use PayPal in stores, it is more online. So I think there'll have been much more of a beneficiary from COVID. Hmm. They've had this massive spike the margins have gone up. They've probably then started expanding. The expansion hasn't really worked because everything's now gone back to where it was. So I think we're now like in terms of like internet shopping growth and stuff, we're basically back on the like trend of where we were pre-COVID. It's just that it's all come in one go and then we've dropped back down. So I think it's just that they were a COVID beneficiary and it was possibly overvalued, but it's not even that, I don't want to say it's not even that big, but this is an $86 billion company, but that's not huge. And considering it was, you know, two, three hundred billion. Yeah. I no, can, right. I, I mean, and if you look at the market cap of MasterCard, that's $310 billion. Yeah. And I, I would look at PayPal and say, I think they can get to the same market cap as Visa yeah. or MasterCard. I don't see why this couldn't be. I mean, it already has been once, but I don't see why it couldn't be like a three or $400 billion business. I, I actually, I think it looks very attractive. No, and I like the buybacks as well. I do like that strategy. <laughs> Yeah, no, not not with Shell though. And the buyback is actually better for you as a UK investor because you don't have to pay withholding tax on it. Yeah, no, that is that is true. Okay, so of the companies this week, which one would you go for, Sam? Well, given that PayPal is the only one I like, <laughs> it's a bit of a no-brainer for me. Uh, but even Fine. even on a, even on a stronger week, I would say that I think PayPal would. Would definitely like it's it's going on the watch list. I may take a serious look at it. I do really like the look of this. I I just think it's fantastic business, and I think the price is very reasonable. What about you? 
I'm inclined towards PayPal. I'd want to do further research, obviously, before buying the shares. I was re- a reluctant seller of Shell last week. And unfortunately, the political situation and the the regulatory uncertainty with Shell meant that I, I felt I had to sell it. So I, I certainly wouldn't be choosing Shell, although I, I previously liked it as a company. I'll go for PayPal. It's not much else. <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, you just can't pick the business you sold last week. Uh, you? Well, I, you you can't. And like I say, it was a painful sale, Sam. I, uh, I yeah, did, I, and, I, yeah, I appreciate I did, that. Uh, yeah, debrief with you afterwards about that. But uh, yeah, it's... It had to go, and it had been a roller coaster of a ride from probably getting my first shares at maybe fifteen pounds, sixteen pounds, and then topping up when it was falling rapidly in spring of twenty twenty. Went down, I topped up, I think about thirteen pounds or so. And I criticised you for it. You did, and then I, I felt made me feel all the worse when we were down eight pounds, and you were reminding me of that. And then we had a fairly rapid rise back up to, well, what I sold at around twenty four fifty. But I, I can't deal with a roller coaster anymore, so the index will be uh, my next investment. Fair enough. Right, I think that's everything in that case. Then thank you again for listening, and we'll see you again next week. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIW Tweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.